You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is Tuesday, October 27, 2020, and I'm here today talking with my colleague, uh, Dr. Jamie Lemke. Jamie, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Yeah, so let's just dig in. Um, I wanted to ask you about if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how you became an economist and then how you became a broad uh, economist uh, rather than a narrow technical economist, a, a more you know broad and, and interdisciplinary economist, and kind of what's your origin story? Yeah. Um, so I think I have a little bit of a, a different path to economics than many. Um, so as a college student and even as a teenager, I had always been really, you know, kind of the um, reflective bookie alone in my room kind of type and just fascinated by this experience of being human and kind of these big life questions like, why are we here? What makes a worthwhile life? What does it mean to do, you know, well for other people and by other people? And um, so that's kind of the, the big picture background. So because of that, I was always drawn towards literature and towards artistic expression. And, you know, as you know, I wound up studying classical piano as an undergraduate. Um, I'm enormously grateful I had that experience because you know, I'll try to you know give some reasons why a little bit later, but I do think it gave me a slightly different view and also a different attitude on working because if you're going to succeed in music, you just have to work enormously hard. Yeah. And everybody who's there studying music is because they had to prepare well enough to be able to audition and get into this music school. So they're all kind of serious. So I just I had the gift of, of going through college and taking my studies very seriously. And I don't know if everybody gets that. Sometimes it takes people longer. Um, anyway, so I, I don't know, I, I will tell the good part of the story in just a second. I don't know if I ever told you the first bad part of the story, which is that my first economics class was terrible. Like just truly horrible. Um, and so my, my first impression of economics, because it, it was taught by a guy, he was a full-time professional and he was just adjuncting, teaching this three hour night class. And he downloaded the publisher's PowerPoint slides and he would put them up in front of the room and read them. Yeah. Would, it wouldn't even explain or talk, just literally just read them. I'm like, I can read, been read, doing it for a while. Don't really need this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my initial attitude, because I know you've talked before about um, you know, kind of having your eyes opened by supply and demand kind of thing and being immediately seduced by economics. But, you know, my first impression was more like that's, you know, you're talking about the hamburgers and, <laughs> you know, that's really cute, the guns and butter and everything. And, but I think I, I saw, you know, what was useful about it is being so intuitive that my reaction was kind of like, do you really need a chart to tell you that if more people want something, the price is going to go up? Like, like, wasn't that just obvious from the beginning? So then it wasn't until I started to appreciate um, the way in which standards of living and our experiences with each other on the planet are kind of man-made. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, 
of course, we're all relatively privileged growing up in the United States that, you know, we grow up in wealth and with so many of our needs provided. So I think it's when I started to understand that that wasn't the case everywhere. And the reason it wasn't the case everywhere is because people were being intentionally held back. Um, and I really started to realize that through this comparative economic systems class I took and their supply and demand wasn't just like the cute thing on the blackboard, but instead um, it was illuminating the, the market process and how that impacted people's lives. Um, and I just remember learning about the Soviet Union and just feeling kind of heartbroken um, that there were so many people who were trapped and suffering and it seemed to be for no good reason just for, you know, for political glory. Um, or, you know, and now I understand the ways in which it's dysfunction also and not just, um, not just power seeking, although that's part of it, of course. Um, and so I think I'm still, you know, largely motivated by that, that it's kind of, you know, heartbreaking that there's all this suffering and all this suppression and it's for a lack of, um, you know, a lack of real economic understanding about the fact that markets have this very holistic role in people's lives. Um, and yeah. so the kind of the, the the other thing there is that, you know, in addition to being heartbroken about the Soviet Union, I read Hayek for the first time um, in, this is Bob Lawson's comparative economic systems class. Um, and I, I still remember reading the use of knowledge in society. Um, and I think, a, you know, a little later, maybe a year or two later, I read the constitution of liberty. And so in addition to you know, being heartbroken by the suffering, just also being awestruck by what the market could do. And this argument about the creative potential of the market and just like, oh, like the frustration of the fact that there's so much creative potential and that politics can just reduce that to nothing. Yeah, I, uh, I think we've all had our share of bad teachers, uh, you know, so we do know that, I, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating what when you can overcome it and when you can't overcome it. So I'm I think I'm the type of person that. <clears throat> If I would have had that experience that you had, I probably wouldn't have taken the next class in economics, right? And so by the time that I had my teacher that stood up and literally opened up the textbook and read the chapters to us, just like you're talking about, they stood at a podium and opened up their textbook and said, chapter two, <laughs> and then started reading. I was already so into it that I was like, this is just stupid. Let me just get through this class kind of thing. But I did have, I had one, another professor that, um, that I found completely unacceptable and I just boycotted him. And that was really hard to do in a four faculty member department <laughs> because I ended up by having like one year I had the, a, a professor that I found, you know, to be good. I had them for three hours in a row because I had the, you know, the 50 minute class, 50 minute class, 50 minute, because I took them for different sections that they were offering rather than take the other guy. So it was like, I heard the same lecture over and over again, kind of thing. Um, it, it's, I, I think it's unfortunate. Do you have any kind of, did you have that experience at all in music or is there something about economics education that sometimes invites that as opposed to like what you had with music or art history or anything like that? I, I mean, I don't know if there's an answer to that question. I'm just wondering if the subject matter sometimes is, is presented boring because people find it boring. Whereas there's a great line in Pagu where he says that if I want inspiration, 
okay? I would go to religion or to art or to philosophy. I wouldn't turn to economics, but I turn to economics because I want to solve social problems. So it's because of poverty, ignorance, and squalor that Pagu is willing to learn and go through the hard work of learning economics, but not because he finds what you said, the beauty and other kinds of things like that. I remember when I read that the first time I was like struck, like, well, I guess I wouldn't have liked meeting Pagu because, you know, he doesn't find economics fascinating. But at the same time, I kind of understand it because like my son, my oldest son is a musician and, and involved in art promotion and, you know, and, and different kind of things like that, entrepreneur, art entrepreneurship kind of ideas, promoting different artists. And he's really a smart kid, but he found economics boring like compared to like the other things. And, and, and uh, so I'm just wondering if you thought there's something about that. Yeah, I do think that there is, um, there is something different. I certainly had music teachers uh, who were bad, especially before college in high school. Like I remember I had a private instructor one time who would sit there and flip through a magazine <laughs> while I was playing <laughs> instead of paying attention. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can, as you know, you can uh, become an economist without ever developing the skill of being able to connect with other people over ideas. Right. You can you can succeed in a very kind of um, you know blackboard way and still find gainful employment. I don't know if you can, uh, you know, keep yourself fed as a musician if you can't find a way to connect with other people over your music. So I think, you know, maybe it's a, a part of the, the healthiness of the discipline, which makes it a, you know, a safer career choice, but it, it means that um, not everybody is necessarily going to be required to become a, a, a good teacher and to connect. A good communicator. Uh, I want to ask you a question uh, that, again, is a little weird about this background idea, only because I think that the way that you described yourself as a teenager is fascinating, because it seems like you were... Um, at painting a picture of the world and then the science fills in the different parts of the picture, but you always had a picture. And so that relates also to the seeing the big picture about the wealth and poverty of nations and then painting in the particulars about a supply and demand curve. So rather than building from the, the ground out, it's from the, the big picture in. Do you see it that way? And is that, do you think you re retain that? Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it, that way of doing it is necessarily better, but I do think it's true that um, for me, science is the thing that's useful towards helping you understand and what's important is uh, the world and the human experience. And there are other people who are more, uh, you know, animated by the technical development of the science itself. And I would never say that doesn't have value also. Yeah. Um, so I don't, obviously there's a, you know, I think some of your other questions might raise this point also, but of course there is a danger maybe in doing science in a way that's too disconnected from uh, the relationship that that theory might have to the world. There's this kind of interesting thing about theory of, you know, it is, Obviously, people can, you know, do and pursue pure science because people can do whatever they want. But as a social scientist, um, you know, what you say might not always be what's heard. So yeah. kind of how much responsibility does the scientist have over what is heard 
or can is it okay to just say back oh well that wasn't my intention with the theory so i don't have to worry about that you know it's it's uh i didn't mean to ask you about this but as a classical uh pianist as you were trained i just um listened to a pretty interesting uh uh, interview that was linking to a TED talk, uh, but it was then this was an NPR interview with uh, this guy who um, uh, has written the kind of definitive history of Jonathan Cage's four, four minutes and 33 seconds. And the pianist who first performed that almost lost his entire career, uh, you know, by, by doing it, people were just like, freaking out like what the hell is this guy doing to his career it's 1950s you know so it's like a very bizarre time and everything but then this guy explained what what cage was trying to do with it which is to make you be aware of the sounds that are around us at all time by having the sounds from on the stage be muted or non-existent that would then see us to be able to hear the sounds. And like once he started telling it, you realize that in every kind of construction, even a construction of nothing, <laughs> there's like a big picture that they're trying to do. So, you know, it's not just like, you know, composers sit down and start with a note and then build from the note out. They have an idea of what they're trying to capture. There's something they're trying to capture. And I think it's the same with like, painting. It's not like Jackson Pollock. If, if what Jackson Pollock did was just stand in the middle of canvas and spin around, <laughs> any of us could do it, right? But like he had something that he was trying to do. And I, and I keep on thinking about this parallel between scientists and artists, because I think that art, science is much more artistic than we give it credit for. And that um, art actually is more logical and and whatnot then then we often you know recognize it as and it's that interaction effect between these things that i think you know and i think really really good political economists historically have this creativity and this construction all going on and and i know that's probably weird for most people to think about uh, because they're like what the hell but um yeah it's it's uh yeah so anyway we, we we can go down the wrong path on if i keep on pushing you on this but i i think it, no, but, I, mean, I think you i think you raised an interesting question about intelligibility though because especially if you're doing more um you know more contemporary art I, i'm more familiar with the musical space and with visual art but i assume that similar dynamics apply like you know you can go and listen to uh you know, jazz in the modern day has taken on a lot of kind of contemporary art music influence in some spaces. And so, you know, if you are unfamiliar with that language, you can go and listen to it and get just absolutely nothing out of it. Yeah. And listen to the performance and think like, what, what are these? It, it just sounds like noise to me. Yeah. So it's this issue of have you listened to, you know, and understood enough of what comes before to be able to speak that language yeah. Or is it like you're going to a talk and the talk is in a foreign language, but you evaluate it as if they yeah. had been trying to speak English or something. So, and I, I think it's the same kind of thing um, in being able to communicate your research or about economic ideas too, um, is that you have this uh, 
well, you, you don't have to do it, but if you want your you know, more sophisticated ideas to get off, you have to be able to communicate the foundations as well. Yeah. And obviously there's a kind of a lack of a, a common economic language or vocabulary about markets. There's, you know, in, in some sense, those fundamentals are missing from our popular discussions in politics and about, you know, yeah. markets in the economy. I mean, I, I'll, I'll mention Paul Samuelson favorably here, which is not something I always do, but one of the things that he argued created the biggest confusion in the world in this discourse is when you use the same words to mean different things and different words to mean the same thing. And if you think about a lot of the debates that take place and confusions, it does have that in its roots. I don't think Samuelson's answer to that was the correct one, but I do think that there's something very serious about that. But let me ask you a question that gets to your work now rather than your, your background, um, which is that, um, so you've actually tackled lots of different problems in your career as an economist. Um, and you've used lots of different methodologies. So if you think about like the early work that you did with Bob, you know, you, you know, that's pretty standard approach to how you measure the uh, consequences of a policy or whatever. Uh, you've worked with Tyler Cowen and actually were part of a, you know, a kind of a significant debate going on at the time that was in the New York Times and stuff. And you, you know, learn how to communicate economics um, in a way that, uh, you know, very early in your career, actually, uh, you've done work with Chris Coyne, you've done stuff with myself, you've done stuff independently with other graduate students, graduate students under your supervision. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you think are the important lessons that you've learned methodologically and analytically from this sustained effort and research. I do think that an important commonality among all these methods, because you know, I, uh, you know, Bob Lawson does empirical economic freedom research. So uh, we did a project that was connected to that and that was using, you know, cross country econometric analyses. And so I kind of learned that process. I did other, um, you know, independent studies with Thomas Stratman. And then most of the other work since then has been in either um, history of economic thought or analytical narrative in economic history has been the primary um, method that I've used. But you know, all of these, um, I think that the main common connection between them is that any of them can be done well and any of them can be done poorly. And the, the ugly reality is that the majority of scholarship is sloppy regardless of what method is being chosen. So I mean, I, I don't mean that to be overly negative. I, I think good scholarship is hard. So we just have to work hard at it in order to get past that. Yeah. Um, I used to uh, think that analytical history was more difficult than other methods. And I do think like all methods, it has its unique challenges, but I've kind of come now to believe instead that it's just that doing history well is more difficult than doing uh, a sloppy data analysis. Like you can do, um, you know, quantitative analysis, the easy way where you download a prefab data set and just, you know, play around trying to come up with some uh, regression method that it has, has not yet been applied or question that has not yet been asked using that data. Um, so obviously that's kind of the, um, the easy route and uh, the limiting route because then you pre-limit yourself according to what data is available. Yeah. Um, but yeah, regardless of what method you kind of want to use, doing the hard work 
of starting with the question and then going to look at the historical record. Because by the way, that you know, I know this is not like news to you, but I sometimes find it a little surprising when people make too much of the difference between history and data because they're the same thing. <laughs> it's just yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just a different recording method. The data is, you know, one way that you can record something that has happened in history. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, putting the question before the method, I think, regardless of your method of choice, um, is something that, in my experience, I've found to be important and to make, especially if you want your research to be interesting. Yeah, and it's a, it's a big pitfall for people who limit their questions to what they think the data gives them. So it's the opposite. Um, it's interesting that you, so I wanna, I wanna get you to talk a little bit about the archive stuff and maybe the, the analytic narrative leading into social history kind of connection in your work. But, um, you know, when you were talking about good work and bad work, I recently um, <clears throat> started uh, rereading and thinking about uh, some work from Willard Quine in a, uh, in a book called The Webs of Belief. And he has an argument in there that I think I understand. I've been trying to confirm it with other people that know more about philosophy than I do, but um, it, it's basically argumentative virtue. Uh, what he means by that is learning, I take it to mean uh, learning what arguments can cross a very difficult bar that would put the switch the burden of proof, right? So you think about it like the, you come into a set of, of arguments in which someone has the burden of proof on them and you have to meet an argumentative test, have an argumentative virtue such that your argument um, is going to be enough that it shifts the burden of proof the other way again. And most people are unwilling to do the work to do that. And so this is one of the reasons why they either don't challenge the existing status quo or convention, they just go along with it, that would be the normal science, or they become too satisfied themselves by their own answer and they don't worry about changing the debate. And again, you know, I might be totally wrong about how I understand Klein and everything like that, but I remember Buchanan constantly trying to get us as when I, when I was a student, trying to get us to understand that you had to steer a path between the arrogance of the eccentric, right? And, and this goes back to your position earlier where I don't have to try to convince anyone because I have the truth all right here in my noggin, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Or the position that whatever everyone else is saying must be true, so I'll just go along to get along kind of idea. And this is his dare to be different. You have to somehow negotiate these paths. And what you were saying about the recognition that multiple methods, I think, can all be both good and we can learn from them and they can be bad. That's actually kind of a fascinating um, revelation, which is hard, I think, for people that have become vested in a methodology. So you wrote a paper about the science wars. And before I get to my next question, uh, talk a little bit about that paper, maybe. Um, so, oh gosh, I have to remind myself what that, get myself back in that frame of mind. 
Um. <laughs> I don't mean to put, but I'm just fascinated by this recognition of what we consider to be science, who controls it, how we challenge it, how we negotiate, while at the same time not saying that there's only one way to do it. I mean, it's very, you're, um, well, I'm going to bring this up shortly, but I mean, this is a very Lynn Ostrom kind of position, right? Which is that we have multiple methodologies. We need to be more flexible, but more excellent, I think, on all margins. So this is just- yeah. I mean, and I think it's uh, an interesting, so, so the, the science wars issues is about, um, you know, what counts as science and how objective is science actually? And, um, you know, what can we know and what can we accomplish using scientific methods? Um, and so I think part of that, you know, without going into to too much detail on it, I think part of the motivation there in that paper and one of the things that I took away from it and actually have taken away from a, a lot of my other research as well um, is an increasing desire to be um, you know more and more humble about what it is that I think that I can understand yeah. and so you know, in general I think um, you know because since we've been talking about methodology I think uh, that subjectivism is in relatively scarce supply within the social sciences and even in economics where it's supposed to be, um, you know, kind of sacrosanct. And so we you know, mentioned subjectivism when we lay out the methodological propositions, but then, um, you know, a lot of utilitarianism and insertion of you know, expert values and values of the analyst actually gets implicitly done when it turns to deciding uh, what questions are worth asking and, and what information is relevant. Um, so I think you know, part of the science wars has to do with uh, you know post-positivist philosophy, and you know yeah. I don't know if we want to go too far down that that road today, but I think in general that you know the challenge from that perspective. Um, to not fall into the traps of scientism. Um, I, I don't know if it's always taken quite as seriously as it would be valuable to take it. Yeah. We end up by becoming sci uh, uh, suffering from scientism in our criticism of scientism. Uh, so I, 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 I'm going to ask you one other question, not on the post-positivist philosophy, but on the point that you just made about humility because I think that is really fascinating. Do you see a relationship between the first point that you mentioned, which is about the, not the first point, but when you talked about the recognizing the awe and beauty of these patterns that exist and humility um, that is sort of, so the, the once we recognize the, the complex beauty it's really hard to then not be humbled in front of it, right? Yeah, you'd think so. Um, <laughs> it's, there's, the, um, there's the allure of cleverness too, though. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people are attracted to, uh, you know, the social sciences because they want to, like, you know, understand the, the mystery of the world kind of thing, maybe the overly rhetorical way to, to talk about, you know, but then there are some people also that, you know, actually, whether you start out this way or not, I think 
the structure of academia kind of <clears throat> encourages people to become pontificators yeah. and, no, and you know, you're given this job where it's like, okay, we're going to pay you. And if you're in economics, it's a pretty good salary, but we're going to pay you to stand up in front of young minds and impart your brilliance and feel free to just stand there and talk free form for 10 to 15 hours a week. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, do I have 10 to 15 hours worth of, you know, thoughts that are worth, Yeah. you know, the, the rest of the world needing to have, if, you know, if you're really humble about it, you know, I don't know. So, so I mean, that, I think that's the difference between stepping back and approaching teaching as more of a conversation and kind of figuring out, um, you know, where people are and be able to dialogue with them using your knowledge, you know, from a position of where they are and just being the pontificator. And, the, you know, there's a huge reward for pontification in, in economics. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, I love that. I actually think the, 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 um, the best thing that ever happened to me in my life was, was marrying my, my wife, Rosemary, and she's my best friend. And going back to when we were kids and everything. <laughs> but I also think one of the things that she has always done is keep me very grounded. So, you know, she's, she's much smarter than I am when we first met, you know, I knew that right away that she was much smarter. And so she calls me when I try to think that I'm so damn clever, you know, about everything. And I think that makes you, that's pretty, and I probably still suffer from, I'm so damn clever that I can criticize scientism and damn it, you know, I, in fact, am so clever. I'm the practitioner of scientism. <laughs> this is what you were just talking about. It's like, I can tell you how to fix things. Um, so that's pretty great. Um, I think that's a really important lesson about learning to check ourselves and recognize, but it goes back to earlier. What you said is that teaching when it's done correctly is a two-way conversation. I don't want to sound holier than thou because obviously I'm enjoying hearing the sound of my own voice right now. And I have my own, <laughs> you know, points that I want to make and convince people of. But just to make you know one last connection here before we move on, um, I think this um, issue of taking a more uh, a more humble and a more subjective approach is actually part of the reason why questions related to women's rights have been um, overlooked often by people who study the market. And you know, I think implicitly there's you know because I think many people who do study the market kind of share with me this, this view uh, that, you know, the poverty and oppression are these great injustices. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of a short walk from there to thinking that, you know, uh, you know, measured quality of life and the level of wealth are, are these um, kind of you know, priorities in a class of their own that, that stand apart from other kinds of social concerns we might have. And so I think then it's, um, it, it's very easy to kind of disregard some of what's happening under the surface and to decide as the analyst that kind of the level of wealth in this society is going to be more important than, uh, you know, equality and how universally the rights are distributed within that society and what kind of values and opportunities the entire population has. So it is, it, it, it's easy to slip into um, kind of, you know, ugly utility monster version of utilitarian thinking without being fully aware that you're doing so. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's part of kind of my hobby horse is to, 
to try to make this case that, um, you know, if you do an analysis that doesn't take, um, you know, oppression and rights violations seriously, you're effectively offering us, you know, an account of men's property rights. Yeah rather than of property rights for that society. And, you know, in doing so, you're, you're really missing um, the big picture. You know, women's rights aren't, uh, like they aren't, they aren't a special topic. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great, I mean, it's a, a great lead into the next series of questions that I want to ask you about. But I also think it's, I, I've become painfully aware of this. Uh, I think that one of the issues is presentism. So since we're arguing today, about how things are, we tend to forget how horrible things might have been in the past. Um, and as a result, we then uh, have a disjoint between the past and the present that we don't recognize because in the present, formally, it doesn't seem like we have these impediments. So therefore, you know, we've overcome whatever it might be and that's in the distant past rather than at any kind of thing. And so again, like one of the shocking things in your own work on on women's rights or the work that you and I and Pete did on, uh, you know, the, the life sales and divorce and, and all of that is just what, how screwed up the property rights were that limited people's ability to have their range of choice and what they had to do in that. And so then, you know, what do you actually mean by choice in these environments and stuff? But, but maybe, you know, you can talk about that if you want, but I wanted to ask you about uh, your work on the basis of sex, uh, on exploitation of the weak by the strong, and how do you personally balance normative and positive and scholarship and advocacy on those issues? Um, because, you know, your work has been award-winning work. That award-winning work was actually for understanding the evolution of something rather than the idea of judging that evolution, right? That, so that was just a, a pure piece of history of understanding how that came about um, in, in development with respect to women's rights. Um, but obviously, you know, there's a reason why we want to focus, like you just said, on some of those things. Uh, but also, I mean, you just made a really good point about the utility monster coming in about, you know, think about, uh, you know, the history from the 17th century into the 20th century that we focus on about the, the rate of economic growth and the betterment of everyone like that. Um, we, we tend to, and if we, the more we focus on the macro effects of that, the less we actually think in terms of the advancements that you're talking about. So go from there, how do you balance these things? How do you uh, approach it? Where do you think is our biggest blind spots today? Yeah. Uh, just uh, briefly on your point about history, this is a point that, um, you know, many people from different, uh, you know, areas of study and ideological camps have made, but, you know, Don Lavoy, I think, makes this uh, point persuasively in national economic planning. You know, he emphasizes the fact that, you know, so much of our discussion of American history does overlook the treatment of Native populations, it overlooks slavery, it overlooks you know, disabilities and women's rights. And one of the, you know, interesting things about the contemporary conversation around liberalism is that these things have become entangled in a way where people now think that those acts of violence and oppression are part of liberalism, rather than recognizing that those are like the failures 
at that time to have implemented a vision of liberal equality. Um, so, I mean, clearly there's a, you know, I have a, I have like a little bit more scientific point to make, but just first, I, I do think, um, you know, on the advocacy point, I, I don't consider myself doing advocacy, um, although I'd, maybe I will at some point, I don't know, but I mean, clearly I, I do have, um, you know, a personal motivation in this, in the sense that I, I care deeply about it. And I, and, you know, it was fairly shocking as a, you know, cause I grew up, um, without the hint of an idea that my gender made me lesser or would disqualify me from anything. And then so to learn how pervasive patriarchy has been historically and still is around the world, um, I think it was kind of a fairly shocking moment. And then, um, you know, over time, I have seen, you know, a failure to address those questions with respect to, um, you know, gender and race and caste and all forms of, um, you know, group oriented oppression as, as something that is kind of missing, um, you know, in our contemporary conversation. So, so yeah, I guess, I guess the advocacy may be in the sense of trying to carve out some scientific space for these and to try and to make the point. And all the more tragic, right, Jamie, and the people that profess to have liberal virtues and, and whatnot, that that should be something that because if they see liberalism as a long, hard-fought struggle for the expansion of rights to individuals against the group oppression, both in the private sector and the public sector, um, then those issues should not have been so easily pushed aside or negotiated in the sense that, uh, I, mean, I mean, one way to que question this is, whether or not you think that the coupling of liberalism and these earlier oppressions is a consequence of, of collectivist thinking or a consequence of liberals having bad expressions about the way they did things. And I think one of the interesting ways in which you're pushing the conversation is for us to critically self-reflect on what aspects of our own argument um, have uh, not communicated the incompleteness of the liberal revolution, as opposed to uh, just stressing the uh, other aspects. I, I, I'll say one thing. I read a book this summer by Emma Griffin. I don't know if you've read it. it she's a social historian. It's called Liberty at Dawn. And it's about the Industrial Revolution, its impact on the everyday people in England in the 19th century. And what she does is she recaptures it based on letters and various personal histories that people tell and things like that. So it basically covers, you know, basically 1800 to 1890, uh, you know, kind of going on. And when you read it, it's amazing how much life has improved for the, av the, 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 the average Joe, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, and you, you know, you asked if it's a, um, a failure of collectivist thinking or a failure of liberal thinking. And I, you know, just from a, a practical uh, perspective, if you care about these ideas, um, you can't leave the responsibility with others to articulate your own yeah. message. So to the extent that there's a misunderstanding, yeah, you know, whether it's fully true or not, I think the productive way to 
to think of that as, as a failure, you know, to have kind of fully articulated our own project and, and to have, you know, I, I think also to acknowledge that there are legitimate errors in the project to the extent that these things have been considered trivial. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your own approach to uh, power and uh, try to um, augment sort of Austrian economics, public choice economics to put power more at the center and how that then relates to issues related to race and gender and, and uh, sexual orientation, you know? Yeah, um, I, so the special issue just came out of the independent review um, where I have a, there's a, um, a symposium in there on polycentricity and I wrote a paper for that on, uh, you know, it kind of brings up out these ideas about consent in the liberal tradition and uh, trying to understand how it is that, um, you know, political systems shape the types of consent that are available to us. And so specifically, there's been this uh, challenge of social contract theory that, uh, you know, Social, you know, social contract theory can be used as a, you know, a description of what happened historically, or it can be used as this, um, a, a theory against which we can evaluate alternative existing institutional structures. I think the latter is more useful. Um, but for both, there's this criticism been offered that um, so often um, in existing political systems, the, you know, the social contracts, meaning the rules by which we are engaging with each other politically and socially have been um, created just by a segment of the population um, with, uh, with violence used to require obedience by the rest. Um, so, you know, then to, you know, to call that, um, you know, some kind of liberal ideal is of course a pretty grievous error. Um, but I do think power is at the, it's at the core of political economy and it's at the core of public choice economics. You know, I think we say it so often, we don't hear it, but the title of Buchanan and Tulloch's book is The Calculus of Consent. You know, it's, you know, looking at this question of, um, you know, individuals freely engaging in interaction with each other. And so I guess in, in terms of, you know, something um, unique or different that I've tried to bring to that project, um, you know, bringing explicitly into that conversation the fact that um, the rules for consent have often been different according to characteristics like gender and race um, seems to me to be uh, kind of obvious. So, you know, that's why I like to talk and write about it to invite challenge on that so I can hone my, my understanding of exactly why that is and how it operates. Um, but I think if we, if we view our institutions as being the outcomes of, you know, negotiation that take place between different types of interests within particular systems of rules, um, then understanding you know, the ways in which, uh, you know, those rules have been very different for different people seems to me to be a critical part of the project. So I think, you know, looking at the ways that market opportunity and that, uh, you know, democratic 
organization that allows people to really participate in the crafting of their own rules. Um, the way that that can actually open up spaces for people whose interests are not, um, you know, currently being well represented, um, I think is very important to understand right now, because the alternative is the the scientific expert control alternative right. of let's, you know, we need to have an expert step in and readjust our institutions in order to accommodate for those people. But that doesn't actually give those people their own voices. Yeah. You know, it's, it's through, you know, enabling, uh, you know, disadvantaged groups, which, you know, the composition of those is going to be different depending on the place and the time you're talking about. But it's about giving the disadvantaged groups um, the, the space to be able to uh, create and take advantage of their own opportunities. And I think, you know, both markets and democratic organization are, are critical to that. Yeah, I was just thinking while you were talking that, um, you know, this is why the polycentricism stuff and self-governance is such an important aspect of, of what you're talking about, but also that uh, libertarianism uh, is its own form of legal centralism. Uh, and the reason is, is that it is grounded in the idea of the non-coercion or non-aggression. So it rules out. And by ruling out, it ends up by not allowing us to understand how it is that we could ever come up with rules to do it. So it just declares there is a right and wrong of compulsion by the state. And so if you're on this side, there must not be any power being expressed because we've ruled it out of court, as opposed to, you know, on this side, then it's all power and all aggression. And it has a single source of it, which is the state. And I think that by somehow not falling into that trap. It's kind of like the same thing that Buchanan falls into with the veil of ignorance, right? You're not gonna have uh, any kind of uh, bargaining from a, from a known position if all of us are drained of where our known position is. And so therefore, don't we have rules that just you know, have no embedded you know, uh, power structures in them rather than the idea that Pete got to choose the rules for basketball and chose that everyone could only be five foot seven except for him, <laughs> right? Uh, kind of idea. And then I would be able to be the king of basketball or whatever. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's a, you raise a, a really good point. And I like this last point that you just raised about how do we effectively give voice to the disadvantage? Um, do you have, do you have like case studies or anything that you would point to as critical examples? You know, Vivian, since this is uh, economic sociology motivated in part, um, you know, Viviana Zelizer has some, you know, her work has some interesting connections to this. Um, but I, I think that there are um, just you know, millions of examples, especially I'll, I'll take the, uh, you know, economic opportunity one first. Um, you know, one of my, uh, you know, favorite examples is um, Susan B. Anthony, which, so I think we often think of her as a suffragist, but she has an, an earlier history as an advocate of, um, you know, reform in women's property rights and trying to, uh, you know, generate some, uh, some equality in that regard, because you know, at the at the time, uh, you know, marital property was entirely under the legal control of the the, the man in the husband wife relationship, and uh, so uh, Susan B. 
Um, she grew up um, with a, a father who was both a Quaker and an entrepreneur. Um, so as you probably know, the, you know, the Quakers have a, a history of, um, you know, being really active in abolition. Yeah. So I think there was a, you know, a little bit of an ideological setting there in terms of her, um, you know, thinking of social reform and something and equality as something that, um, you know, it, it's worth fighting for and, you know, and respecting the equality of all persons. Um, but one of her father's entrepreneurial ventures also um, was uh, as the owner of a textile mill. Um, two different mills at different points in time, actually. And so the textile mills in American history, they were um, uh, they were significant employers of women. Um, and one of the kind of few non-domestic work opportunities that would have been available to women at that point in time. And so as a, a young girl, she interacted with these women who had um, come to work at the textile mill. And she you know, reports this in her autobiography as being um, kind of the source of her um, confusion as to why it is that women should face legal disabilities over their economic control, because it was clear to her um, that these uh, women were intelligent and perfectly capable of managing their own finances. They did not need to be managed by a man. Um, and I think that if you look through um, the history you know, economic opportunity allows us to see people doing things that we before did not think that they could do. And so it's, um, of course, it's about um, the money too, because money allows you to get um, kind of physical independence. You can actually, you can afford to move away from people who are not treating you well. Um, but it's also about the way that, um, you know, economic opportunity economic opportunity can change our ideas about what we and others are capable of. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the thing that I have in mind. Yeah. I, I wonder if, um, so Virginia Woolf wrote a, uh, a, a really, um, you know, fascinating, um, you know, little essay called a, a, a Room of Her Own, you know, like, a, and, uh, and she, it was about women and being able to have a room of her own, be able to have independence and stuff like that. I think she claimed something like you needed 500 pounds a, a year or something like that. And you could be, you know, completely, it'd be fascinating to look at that today and see, you know, what has changed in economic opportunity for women, um, what that has done for their ability to do it, what still could be done, um, you know, for that. So, um, it's a, it, like a lot of these things, you know, people have been asking these questions for a long time and uh, um, answers are still waiting to be had. So yeah. says something about what's going on. Um, all right. Uh, challenges that you faced in trying to do historical research on social issues. So, you know, this is, this is, you've done a lot of this. You've been in archives, you've tried to, as we mentioned before, you've done various different multiple methods. You can think about your travel restrictions as actually giving people economic opportunity that otherwise they wouldn't have had, you know, by having greater ease of, of, of travel. And um, so you've done it in a variety of ways. Uh, what are the biggest obstacles that you face both in doing the research and in trying to sell that research in social science journals? Yeah, 
I think one of the challenges of, um, of doing history is that um, history is not uh, an object there to be discovered. It itself is actually an artifact that has been created um, yeah. by, by living people who had their own um, values and their own ambitions. Their own scripts to, to write, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this great little book um, called uh, What is History? Hopefully I'll remember the author soon, but um, he has a line in there where he says, uh, you know, it's a dull chap who doesn't have any bees in his bonnet. And, and whenever you, he talks about how whenever you're reading something that's been written into the historical record, you better figure out what those bees are. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, doing history, what this, this means is that um, you really do have to dig deeper, especially if you want to ask um, questions about those who have not been the victors in history. So, so especially if you're looking at disadvantaged groups, you have to look a little deeper in order to get accurate information. And there are genuine um, errors in the historical record, but the even bigger problem is just the lack of information. Um, so, you know, which, you know, that's a, that's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because then it means that there are legitimately things there to uncover, um, you know, and that can be quite exciting. Um, but also if you're doing history uh, on a, a topic that is distant from your own life experiences, either because it's you know, outside of your lifetime or in a different part of the world, um, it's, it can be very easy to misunderstand. Um, and, you know, and that potential for misunderstanding increases the further away you get. So I remember when I started reading 19th century sources, there were times where I would, I, I would honestly not know if something was being offered um, as a point of fact or it was a joke. So you have to kind of do this wide reading in the history in order to learn the context. You have to figure out how to speak that language a little bit. And you know, when you're looking back at historical sources, some of them are the equivalent of like an academic journal today, and some of them are the equivalent of like you know BuzzFeed News or even Babylon Bee or whatever. And so, if you don't have enough context to know what it is you're reading, um, you can wind up saying silly things. So I think um, you know this this happens a lot, and we see uh, scholars making um, silly mistakes um, by not understanding the historical context. Like, uh, like misunderstanding, um, you know, a legal term as a, as, you know, as being literal rather than metaphorical, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so taking the time to read um, widely in the history, it, it's that challenge and this opportunity. You know, and it's also one of the things that is just really a joy sometimes oh, yeah. because it's like the detective work component of it. Yeah, we, we ran into that with the wife sales papers and the way different people reacted to what we were trying to say when really we were trying to look at a world in which people were engaged in indirect bargaining to try to improve their lives. But yeah, but I have a I have a, 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 an observation and a question I wanted you to comment on, which just dawned on me while we were talking and what you were just talking about understanding context and whatnot, which is how varied your own experience has been as a young scholar in this first decade of your, 
career or so, right? Because, uh, you know, not only were you an undergraduate at a, uh, you know, Midwest liberal arts college, okay, which is a whole different culture itself. Um, you then came to a large state university, right? And you got your first teaching experience at a large state university. Then you taught at an Ivy League blue blood school, probably maybe one of the, the most of the blue blood Ivy Leagues because uh, it, it's, it's not as, as a big of a research environment at Brown as, as some of the other Ivies. So it's not the same as, as being where it's all graduate students all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, and, uh, and so then you taught there, then you went and taught where a place dominated by very uh, particular religious sect of people and then you're back into like secular state university again, you know, teaching. And so from, you know, one of the things we're stressing in the economic sociology is, you know, basically you have economics, economic sociology, and then economic history. And economics is like working out the pure logic of choice. And then, you know, uh, economic sociology is the situational logic where the, these choosers are then thrown into environments defined by law politics, religion, other cultural kind of ideas. Well, you're the teacher and you've been thrown into and student that's in, in these different environments. And so therefore the kind of context shifts radically so in learning. How has that shaped you? And, and, and I mean, do you see it that same way that I'm saying about, I mean, I find that experience must be amazing. In, in some weird sense, right? It's not the experience that like someone like, like Jeff Sachs had, right? So, you know, he went to Harvard, uh, you know, then he taught at Harvard. And, you know, now the big move for him is to be at Columbia, right? And, and you know, and this is how, you know, I, I was involved in, in, in some selection of a position in, in the economics profession this summer. And I had the opportunity to go and look at people who had previously held the position, and they're all from the same schools or, you know, schools. And in the end, you know, the the woman who they picked, very good choice. So I'm not complaining about the choice, but it, this was her educational path. She was a graduate student at MIT. She then got tenure at Harvard. Then she got bid away to teach at Stanford. Right. I doubt that she's ever taught anyone. Like I had at one time a student stand up when I did the, the Keynesian multiplier and then raised her hand and said, so in order to do this class, you have to have an advanced knowledge of statistics. And I said, no, nope, it's just algebra. Very simple. It's just very algebra. She goes, nope, that's advanced statistics. And I said, no, seriously, you don't need to know any statistics. It's just algebra. She goes, we'll have to agree to disagree. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and so, okay, how do I communicate? Because I want to communicate. It's not like I want to rule this person out. But you've been in all those different backgrounds. And the background that the students have, like going from Brown to Utah State, and the different tacit presuppositions that your students at Utah State had versus your students at Brown. How did you communicate across them in such a short like period of time of talking to them? Yeah, I mean, you're, I, I do perceive it that way as well. And, and you're right, those environments, basically every environment I've taught in has been a radically different one. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it definitely gave me a finer appreciation for 
um, just how differently the same sentence can be heard yeah. in a different room. Um, I mean, even a facial expression, how differently the same facial expression can come across in a different room. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, it, uh, I, I think I've used that um, experience to, uh, to feed into how important it is to take people's subjective experiences seriously. Yeah. Um, if you're going to do, uh, you know, work that is intended to interpret um, them and their interactions with the world, um, you just, you can't take it for granted. It's just far too easy to forget that um, we are all, in, and, and by the way, those were, you know, as different as those were, those were all still university environments. Right. You know, the same job, I mean, the diversity in the entirety of the world is even so much greater than that. Yeah. So I think it's very easy to forget that we are, you know, as um, academic researchers, all in the same rarefied environment. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do take it seriously that there are things that we could all commonly believe that other parts of the world don't, don't see and don't believe. And, and we need to figure out a way to, um, to access those or ideally, you know, let those people's actions and words speak for themselves. Um, you know, if we're going to do work that's intended to, you know, to speak to a world that they're a part of. Um, so, so hopefully I've used it in that positive way. Um, but I mean, just on a practical level, I definitely learned a lot of that the hard way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think, I think there's so much to learn from you by actually the fact that you you had that kind of um, past, jagged past, you know, because there's just so many varied experiences. There's a there's a fascinating book I read when I was a graduate student by Mar Mary Catherine Batson called Constructing a Life. And it's about women and the difference between women and men and how women have this more rich experience because they have to play these various different roles in their life that men tend not to have to do and so men are more boring than women you know um and no one wants to be boring so you know you read this to try to figure out how can i be more interesting you know whatever rather than i don't want to be bored but it's 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 a it's not a self-help book it's actually you know it's a serious book or whatever but i i was fascinated by this idea of trying to communicate economics. And even in your case, right, you're trying to communicate things about property rights and whatnot to these various different audiences. Uh, you have a bunch of stuff up in here that I need to get more access to. So I'm fascinated. <laughs> um, all right, so I, I appreciate the time that you spent with us. I have one last question to ask you, which is just for you to talk about what you're currently doing, what keeps you up at night, uh, excite your imagination and share it with the students um, because you know part of the whole thing of this is to is for them to be able to see in in the various different scholars that we're talking to themselves so that they can in fact become owners over their own path just like you and be able to let their curiosity drive them so where are you at at the moment and what are you working on? And, and by the way, congratulations on that new paper. It's excellent and everyone should read it and learn from it, but that's done now. So now what's the next thing? So uh, just real briefly as a segue into that, um, one of the 
one thing that I think was unique about my graduate school experience because of coming out of music um, is that I, uh, I did not have the same fear of failure that I've seen in many other students because I never expected to succeed. Yeah. Um, you know, why would anybody think that somebody who'd spent, uh, you know, the past 10 years focused on playing or 15 years focused on playing classical piano um, would be able to successfully, uh, you know, become a, an academic economist and navigate the PhD process. So I think that, you know, not having those kind of expectations and having had a background where, you know, you, you're asked to go into a silent auditorium and play Chopin from memory. Why would I ever be scared about taking PowerPoint slides yeah. into a classroom after that? So that's not to say that I don't get nervous because I definitely do, you know, still get get nervous because I, you know, care about communicating well and, um, you know, and being able to accomplish my goals. But I think that kind of freed me up to um, select my own priorities. You know, and and one thing that I say a lot when I'm talking to students is you're going into academia, you've already decided you're not here from the for the money. Yeah, yeah. Um, be, because you if you can get through a PhD in econ, you can, um, you know, make a, make more money a lot easier by being an accountant or going into process management or, you know, many yeah. other things. So, so what are you here for? Um, and so I think I think that um, background as well as just the incredible support I've gotten from the interdisciplinary environment at Mercatus um, has really freed me to feel like I can pursue this um, interdisciplinary project of, uh, you know, how, how is it that we navigate some of these um, questions about um, social justice and the impact of, of history in a way that enables us to really um, you know, kind of get some insight into what it means to, you know, be able to lead a flourishing life and for all of us to be able to flourish. So like this project in the independent review is related to this um, larger inquiry I have into um, what is it that enables um, processes of social change to move in the direction of greater freedom and equality. Um, and so um, I'm doing that, looking, uh, looking through the lens of women's experiences in American history. Um, so uh, what were the ideas that people held about women's um, you know, engagement in economic and public life in 1800? And how did we get to such a, a radically different place? Um, you know, now, of course, but, you know, even by 1900, because, you know, patriarchy is one of the most enduring institutional types in human history. Um, you know, it has deep connections in uh, the way that uh, the way that states and nations have been organized um, for just centuries and centuries. And it just, it kind of all blew up in a hundred years, yeah. um, you know, following the industrial revolution, following, you know, modern experiments in democratic self-governance. Um, and the United States was a leader in that, despite the fact that the United States in the 19th century wasn't a leader in much. Right. You know, it's easy to read the current United States back into history, but we were, you know, a relatively poor 
nation of farmers with a, you know, with a lot of serious problems and, um, you know, not a lot of, uh, you know, we were not the progressive center of, of the world. We, right. we can just say that. Um, but you have this um, just incredible expansion in the opportunities then that were available um, to, to women. Um, and, um, you know, I haven't looked at as, you know, as much into the histories of other forms of emancipation, but, you know, these kind of stories you can um, examine for all kinds of people and for, for all around the world. So the one I'm doing right now is women in American history, but, you know, my hope is that um, these examples of liberalism and kind of figuring out what was the the process or, you know, what was the context such that um, this group of, of people who were, you know, legally, historically, socially disadvantaged were able to accomplish so much. Like it's a, it's a modern miracle. It's a, you know, an incredible success story um, for human civilization. And I, I think it deserves to be told and to, to understood well through processes of, you know, economic and political organization, which is why the political economy toolkit is so important um, for articulating those ideas. Well, that's a fantastic place for us to stop. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to uh, share these ideas and encourage you to continue on this great research path you're on because we're all learning tremendously from it. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, Pete. And thanks for your, you know, for your guidance when I was a graduate student and helping encourage me down this path. You know, I, um, it really has meant so much to me. So it's wonderful to talk about it today. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.